0: Good to be with you, and uh, greetings from Lowestoft. I was there last, Gene and I were there last week, and um, as many know, we're spending a bit of time over there with the church, serving there um, for a season, as well as a bit here as well, but um, it's good to be here today, and um, we're going to be carrying on our series in the book of Acts. So if you've got a Bible, either um, turn it on or open it up, one of the two and turn to Acts chapter 2, um, chapter 2, chapter 4, we're not going backwards, we're going forwards. Um, I think we should bring donuts in as well one week, shouldn't we, if we're preaching? What do you reckon? How many hands up for that during the preach? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm not doing, I'm preaching next week, so Mark, are you preaching next week? No, anyway, anyway, I've said it now, we're going to have to do it one day, aren't we? Um, if you remember, I referred to this last time and we preached on, uh, spoke on Acts. Um, about Goff's analogy, right at the beginning of these kind of acts. Think of it like these sort of snapshots, these sort of framed moments of the early church in this 30 year period that Luke writes about. He frames these sort of snapshots. And I referred back to the preach last time on Acts chapter 2, this snapshot of the early Christian community. And then we read forward in Acts, and we through Acts chapter three and so on, you've got this amazing healing. you've got um, Peter standing up to preach about Jesus, you've got an arrest, you've got threats, and then you've got this prayer meeting, which I believe Marcus spoke on last week. And then we've got this another snapshot in Acts chapter four. And I'm um, going to read uh, this in kind of two parts really. Um, we're going to read Acts, the end of Acts chapter four, and we're going to read into Acts chapter five. And really i have just called this um, great, uh, great power, great grace, and great fear kind of sums up this end of chapter 4, but also into chapter 5, which we're going to look into as well. But I'm going to start by reading chapter uh, 4, verses 32 to 37. This word great appears in total twice in this bit in chapter 4, and then twice in chapter 5 at the beginning there, this word great. So let's read it through, this snapshot of the early church. It says in the congregation of those who believed were one of one heart and soul and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own but all things were common property to them all and with great power there's the first great the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the lord jesus and abundant or great grace same word was upon them all second great for there was not a needy person among them, for all were owners of land or houses, would sell them, and they'd bring the proceeds of the sales and they'd lay them at the feet of the apostles, and they'd be distributed to everyone as they had need. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas, first time I think Barnabas is introduced to us, he'll come up again in Acts, by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. It's not a bad name to be named, is it? Someone's going to name you in the life of a church, hey, this is the son of encouragement, this is the daughter of encouragement who owned a tract of land and sold it and bought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we're going to do these first two greats here. And um, the first one is great power. With great power, they were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Is power a good or a bad thing? Yeah, exactly. Depends on where it's from and what it's being used for. You know, there's power in the wrong hands. We've only got to read through history and just to look on the news and to look around and, and, and maybe in your workplace even or in families. Power can be wielded in a way that actually is hugely damaging to other people. It can be controlling. It can be manipulative. It can be corrupt. It can exploit people. It can harm people. That's what power can do. And and let's be honest, in the church, church history isn't exactly a pretty picture of um, the perfect use of, of power, is it? And I'd argue that people who misuse power like that are not following Jesus. But in the right hands, power is a wonderful thing, isn't it? You know, I'm glad that there are people more powerful than I. You know, if I was drowning, for instance, who wouldn't be happy with someone more powerful, more able to come and rescue you, to grab hold of you, when you don't have the power to save yourself in that moment? You'd be grateful for power, yes? Is that fair to say? Yeah. So power is a good thing, but it can be a bad thing. It can be misused as well. So what do we learn about this great power? There's a few things that sort of jumped out to me about Well, how do you how do you live life with this great power that the Bible says is available to, available to us without being corrupted? Because there's that phrase, isn't there, that power corrupts and great, um, absolute power corrupts absolutely or something like that, isn't it? So how do we walk with power? Well, there's a few here. The first thing is this, they realize is the power isn't their own. They, the disciples, were not the source of their power. And Jesus had made it abundantly clear to them. He said that you can do nothing apart from me. And then at the beginning of Acts, you've got that verse that says, you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then in Acts chapter 3, we've got this healing of this lame man at the gate, beautiful as the disciples go up to pray and Peter and uh, they're going up to the temple to pray. And you've got great power on display there in terms of this guy gets healed. It's a miracle. I mean, it's something that required power to happen. But Peter's response to this is when people are staring at Peter going, oh, this is amazing. Wow, this guy is healed. What does Peter say at that moment? Yep, do you know what? Yeah, I'm seriously powerful. No, he says, look, why are you looking at us for? As if this man was healed because of what? Our great power or piety, our holiness, our kind of, because we're pure and holy. As if it's because of our great power. That's Peter's response to that. As if. God's power, the source of it, is not ourselves. It is the Holy Spirit. And that's why we we speak about the Holy Spirit. That's why we we, we encourage you to lean into um, all God has for us by the Holy Spirit, because he's the one who empowers us. It's not power from ourselves. We're not the source. As if. Stuff happens that's amazing in church life, and you look at people and go, Wow, aren't they amazing? No, no, no. as if. (laughs) As if it's them. (laughs) Seriously, as if. It's him. It's what God does. Their power wasn't their own. They're not the source. The second thing is this, that their power was used for the benefit of others. That's the way you see God's power displayed. Ultimately in Jesus, giving his life on behalf of others. You know, the Bible says in Acts 10, that the Holy Spirit anointed him to what? To lay down his life, to serve others. And that's the pattern that we see here, that power is used to love and to serve others in sacrificial ways. The third element of the great power we see displayed as well here is its power that is displayed in weakness. And I think Peter, as you read through the gospel stories, he just had to learn this lesson time and time again, that Peter, it ain't down to you to help Jesus achieve what Jesus wants to achieve. It's just not down to you, Peter. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, after Peter, um, Jesus gets up to face this, these enemies kind of coming in on him. Peter, at that moment, he's got his dagger on him. He thinks, well, I'm going to protect Jesus. I'm going to stop him from being crucified and arrested. And he lops off the ear of one of the guys who's kind of coming in. Poor bloke. And Jesus is like, Peter, put it away. Stop trying to exert your power. To, you're kind of getting in the way, actually. My power is going to be exerted through, through weakness and through the cross. That's the picture of weakness. And yet it's a powerful place. In fact, we look at the power of the cross through the centuries, that this symbol of execution and torture has become this powerful, whatever you believe, a powerful symbol of grace and love and forgiveness and mercy exerted in weakness, displayed in weakness, and that's why um, Paul in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, writes, we've got this treasure, this power in jars of clay. Why? So the surpassing greatness of the power from God is seen to be from God and not from ourselves. That's the point. We are jars of clay. We are just weak human beings, but actually there's a power God wants to display in weakness. That's the way of the cross. It's self-giving love through weakness, for the benefit of others. The power isn't our own. And it's also the power that points to Jesus as well. They gave testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, it says here in this verse. We just read in that, or the verse that Marcus spoke on last week that they, after they prayed, they were filled with boldness. To what? To speak about Jesus. To keep speaking in the face of threats and persecution and ridicule, people being ostracized from their families, there was a boldness there but it was pointing to jesus its power that doesn't point to ourselves you can't follow jesus and be full of pride really it doesn't work the cross the gospel is an amazing pride killer you know but also the gospel puts this incredible as we've been singing you're loved there's this incredible worth and value the gospel puts on your life. <laughs> you are loved. You are approved of. And yet you can't get full of pride about it. Like somehow it's something within me. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. Tim Keller says, The gospel says you're more sinful and flawed than you ever dared to believe. But you're more accepted and loved than you ever dare to hope. It's a good way of putting it, isn't it? The gospel says you're more sinful and flawed than you ever dared to believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared to hope. And this is the way God's power is at work in our lives. It's not our own. It's for the benefit of others. It's displayed in weakness. And ultimately, it points to Jesus, not any one individual. If you see that kind of power on display in the church, where people are abused or people are, I don't know, you know what I'm saying? It's not following Jesus. That's not the kind of power that Jesus calls us to walk in. Be very wary of that when we see it. So it's great power. There's also great grace. (laughs) It says, and great grace was upon them all. One writer, uh, Philip Yancey, says, the word of grace contains the essence of the gospel, as a drop of water can contain the image of the sun. You know, a little drop of water, you can look on a, I don't know, on a wall or whatever, a little drop of water... And yet you can see the reflection of the awesome power of the sun reflected in this little drop of water, can't you? It's like, wow. And he's saying, that's what grace is like. It's like, it says something about the nature of God, of what God is like. The essence of the gospel. And if you want to know what grace looks like, spend some time reading the gospels and look at Jesus. He is the one who is full of grace and truth. So if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're wondering what God is like, well look, hey, look at Jesus. Spend some time. Is this what God is really like? There's great grace. And Barnabas, who's mentioned here, um, later on in I think Acts chapter 11, it talks about when there's some persecution and, and from Jerusalem, and the, the Christians are, 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 they flee and they, they are scattered. Some of them go down to Antioch and they start telling people about Jesus there and then community gets formed and things. And, and so the apostles in Jerusalem send Barnabas down and they say to Barnabas, go and have a look and see what's going on down there. And by the way, I love that, that the leaders were the last to know what was going on in Jerusalem. <laughs> Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that what we want? Don't we want a bit of that in our, here in the life of kings? What's going on in life groups that we kind of hear about? it? Oh, wow, stuff's happening there. People are becoming Christians in that life group, and they're doing this. Oh, wow, look at what's happening. And it says Barnabas was sent to them to go and see what was going on. He said he got there, and what did he see? He saw the grace of God. That's what he saw. Well, what did he see there? He saw people coming to know Jesus. God's mercy and grace in people's lives, people finding forgiveness, a fresh start in life. He saw people loving on one another. He saw the grace of God in action. He saw this diverse community of people, both Jews and Gentiles, who wouldn't normally be together, coming together, in unity together, worshipping together. He saw the grace of God. And he saw it in generosity as well. And that's kind of how the grace of God we see in the verses that we have read is seen. Verse 32, not one of them claimed anything as belonging to them was their own. There was no needy person among them. God, it's worth pausing on that, isn't it, and thinking a little bit. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. I find that challenging. Challenging words. I find them challenging words. Not one of them claimed anything as belonging to them as was just like their own. Think about that. Think of the things you own. How do we perceive them? It's kind of the opposite of um, the seagulls, isn't it, in Finding Nemo, if you know the film. There's these seagulls. Who likes seagulls? Anyone like seagulls here? One or two. Okay. When you're at the beach, though, and you've got your chips. (laughs) I mean, they're vicious, aren't they? (laughs) They're big! We were down in, was it Goulston or something? There was this massive seagull down there, I remember, just kind of looking out for people's chips. But anyway, in, in Nemo, in the film, you've got these seagulls, and they're fighting over these kind of fishes or whatever, and they go, mine, 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 mine. Well, that's the polar opposite of what we see here. It's the polar opposite. There was no one needy. Among them. There was this beautiful generosity that was going on. And why was that? Well, we read in verse 35, 37 that, well, people actually sold some stuff. <laughs> I mean, they saw need in the church. Thought, well, do you know what? I own this piece of land, I'm gonna sell that. And a house is it says. What? A- and and I'm gonna give. I mean, really? Owners of land and houses would sell them. And then they would give to the, put it at the apostles' feet. They'd say, Right, you distribute. So they weren't looking for sort of um, prestige or whatever. They're saying, You just distribute. Wow. Now, look, that goes on here at Kings. I've heard some amazing stories of incredible generosity of people giving cars and selling stuff and helping people and all sorts of ways, actually, that goes on behind the scenes. And, and, and then there's all the regular giving that goes on here, sacrificial giving that goes on. It's this expression of the grace of God. It's the grace of giving, isn't it? And it's not under compulsion. They didn't have to give. We're going to read that in a minute. They don't have to give. You mean, God has, it wasn't like prescriptive, right, this is what all Christians have to do now. Blow, get home, put a house on the market. You know, it's not what it's saying. But some of them did that. Some of them did that. And it's worth saying, you know, whilst keep growing in the grace of giving. Let's, you know, it's easy to sort of plateau in it, isn't it? And you know, get into the habit of giving. But actually, sometimes it's worth just pausing, thinking, praying, Lord, actually, help me. What does that look like for me this week, this month, this year? But thank you so much for your incredible giving into the life of the church here that enables us to do what we do. So there's this great power in the frame, there's great grace in the frame, but then we read verse uh, chapter 5. We turn over the page, well, maybe you don't, maybe it's on the same page in your Bible, but for me, I turn over the page... And let's read this through in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. It says this, but, there's a but, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and they kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it. He laid it at the apostles' feet. So we've got this same thing going on, sold some property, laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit And to keep back some of the price of the land, while it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? And after it was sold, wasn't it under your control? In other words, look, you you didn't have to sell it, and you didn't have to give it all. Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Notice their reference to the Trinity there. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. This is the Trinity in here. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear, there's the great fear, great, came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up and carried him out and they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such or such a price. I wonder if that question to her is this moment of, Do you want to own up here? You're going to tell the truth. Tell me, did you do this? She said, yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, why is it that you've agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. I don't know how you feel when you come across stories like that in the Bible. It's not just here, let's face it. When you read through the scriptures, when you read through the Old Testament, and the New Testament, suddenly you hit these stories that are quite jarring actually, quite shocking. They jolt you, they make you go, what? <laughs> what? Well for me, I don't know about you, but for me this is one of those, absolutely. Reading through Acts, and it's all, you know, it's difficult, and there's great stuff, there's advance, and then prayer meetings, and then this. Whoa, what is going on here? How do we respond to what feels like a bit of a gear-crunching change? And Maybe you're not a Christian, you read it, and you're thinking, what? Is this what Jesus is like? Is this the God of all grace that we've been singing about? How does that even work? Is it unfair? Is this just a whole overreaction? Can we even trust this? I don't know what sort you're like when you read these things. I, I, I know what I'm like. I tend to be, I ask questions. I just can't help it. I'm like, well, how? I want to know. Sometimes um, I think about becoming a Christian like this. That It's like getting on a plane because I can't fly. <laughs> and I need, if I was going to fly somewhere, I would need a power greater than me to trust in. And a plane is like that. I get on the plane. I'm trusting in the plane to get me to where I need to go. Power greater than me. It's kind of like getting on that in Trusting Jesus. God to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I'm trusting in a power that's greater than I am. And as I do that though, you get on the plane. Well, when you fly, different people have different responses on the plane, don't they? I mean, Jean, my lovely wife, she loves flying. She's just on the plane going, this is amazing. Love flying. This is great, 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 great. And I'm there genuinely thinking, how is this thing suspended? Not suspended, obviously, because it's moving, and I do sort of understand the physics of it. But, you know, how is this thing that weighs so much kind of in the air and all the rest of it? And I'm asking questions about it. How does it work? And what about this? And what about that? And how does that work? And sometimes Christians are like that. that some are just on the plane and go. do you know what? I'm okay with this, and I get it. But others, you may be grappling with this stuff, and that's okay as well. We're all on the plane, and you don't have to get off the plane if you're asking questions. And I think that's really important when we come to verses like this, that we can ask questions, we can delve into it, we can grapple with it, even when we feel those questions quite deeply at times. That's okay. We're just different, but we're all on the plane. How do I handle these things? A few things just in handling passages like this when we come across them might be helpful. One is look to Jesus. might sound obvious but I think well I look to Jesus first I think well number one Jesus does speak about judgment and he warns about it as well quite a bit in fact Jesus does talk about judgment you know he says at one point to the disciples fear God who is able to destroy both body and soul in Gehenna in hell I mean that's pretty sobering but Jesus does talk about this and also when it comes to the Old Testament as well Jesus is my starting point for that, that he does affirm the Old Testament of God's Word. So when you come across this, some things in the Old Testament where you're kind of reading through, and you're like, well, hang on. I go to Jesus first. And think, okay, Jesus, you did refer to this as God's Word. Right, I need to now try and understand this. The second thing is look carefully at the context of it. Who's it written to? What's the original meaning? What's the writer trying to communicate about God? And, 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 and just, just be honest about those questions as well. When you're looking at the context of a passage, I found that so helpful to spend time. Maybe ask others how have you processed this? Talk to others in your life groups. Grapple with these things. You know, find someone who's a good tour guide or a good book one that can help you. But look carefully at the context of the, the stories that you're reading. I think when a passage like this, I have to remember that I'm not the final judge on what is right and what is wrong, on what is good and what is evil. I'm not the final judge, Thankfully. And so even though I might find something shocking or even think it's unfair, well, if I'm saying something's unfair, I'm saying that at the heart of the universe, it seems there is a morality there. There is a sense of of wrong and right, even when I say that. So I remember, I'm not the final judge. Um, I remember God is the only one in the position to truly judge. Um, Back in Genesis, I think it is with Abraham, there's that verse that says that, um, "'Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right?' You know, I, I believe that the heart of reality, at the heart of the universe, is not kind of indifference and an impersonal force and, or just kind of randomness or whatever. I believe at the heart of the universe there is love and justice and mercy and, and purity in God. And we see that in Christ, and we see that in the God of the Bible. And he's the only one in the position to really make a judgment, not me. I have to remember that for love to be truly loving, there must be judgment. That true love is not permissive. True love doesn't just let things go. That's not what love does. There has to be justice. There has to be judgment. For there to be genuine love. I remember that sin is more serious than I think when I read this verse. When it says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Sin is serious. It's destructive, isn't it? In our own lives personally, but in the lives of other people as well. And here, the integrity of the community was at stake. And when you um, take away integrity of something like a building, you take away, you weaken it. So there's something happening here that that God is judging. Sin is more serious than we think, and also God is more holy than we imagine. And, And as we read through, we've sung it, holy, holy, holy. And so I remember these things. I try and grapple with this. And I think these things. But then it provokes me to ask two questions. And one is this. Well, as I read through this, who or what is filling my heart? It says that Satan, how do you allow Satan to fill your heart? And you've walked that way. And I think this is meant to contrast with being filled with the Holy Spirit. I think it's meant to be that contrast here in this story. What's filling us? Who's filling us? What are we filling our hearts with? What are we feeding off? Are we feeding off the Holy Spirit that will lead to love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, self-control and walking with integrity and openness? We're we feeding off the gospel of grace, allowing that grace of God to fill our hearts that actually will lead us to go, you know, Do you know what, here's the truth and speak the truth. Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 talks about, if you want to meditate and spend some time thinking about what it means to walk by the Spirit, read Ephesians 4 and 5 there. There's a verse there that says that that laying aside falsehood, we speak truth, each one of you, with your neighbor. They didn't do that. And there's an encouragement here, I think, to lean into that, lean into being filled with the Holy Spirit, not allowing these things to be conceived in our hearts. What's being conceived in our hearts at the moment? Are we giving way to things that are not God's ways and allowing them to be conceived and hatched? It's like something hatched, isn't it? Don't give time to those things. Lay those things aside. Allow the Holy Spirit to fill you. The second question it asks me after what's filling my heart is what's the motive for what I do? You know, am I seeking the approval of others? Interesting. Wayne brought that word earlier to encourage someone. Actually, maybe don't lean into that. And I'm not saying that. Maybe what even Wayne was referring to is exactly the same as what's going on here, but they were certainly seeking praise from others, maybe, to appear better than they really were. And quite frankly, who of us isn't tempted in that way? Really? To appear a bit better than we really are to one another? Anyone else? I know I'm not on my own here, all right? I know it's all of us, really. We all, we're, we're all going to be tempted in that, to seek the approval of others. John Stott says they wanted the credit and prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. They wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity, but without the inconvenience of it. They wanted to appear better. We've given all this money, but they've kept some back. They didn't even have to do that. This would have said, you know what, we're going to keep some back, but we're going to give this amount. That's fine. And it contrasts with Barnabas, really, who was just ultimately seeking the good of others. Not his own seeking the, you know, to look good himself. He was just looking, seeking the good of others. So what motive do we serve? What motive do we give with? Let's lean into the grace of God. And then it says in verse 11, great fear came over the whole church. And um, again, that can be misunderstood, what the fear of God looks like. And there's a great book if you want to delve into it a bit more, a good tour guide. Um, Rejoice and Tremble by Mike Reeves. He's written a couple of other great books we've recommended before, um, The Good God and Christ Our Life. Uh, Mullinder, you're reading this at the minute, aren't you? Yeah, Good book? Yeah, I'll talk to John about it. Uh, There's a quote here, it says this, Right fear, this is talking about the fear of God, does not stand in tension with love for God. Right fear falls on its face before the Lord, but falls leaning toward the Lord. Again, right fear falls on its face before the Lord, knowing actually, this is God we're talking about, there's reverential fear here, but it falls leaning towards God, not away from. It is not as if love draws near and fear distances, okay? It's not like that. True fear of God is true love for God defined. It is the right response to God's full, orbed revelation of himself in all his grace and glory. That's what the right fear of God looks like. And I just want to encourage you that, because these verses, we read them, you could be thinking, ah, and if you've got a sensitive conscience as well, I know I lean into an oversensitive conscience reader. Really, I could be like, oh my goodness, you know, oh, we get a bit soul searching. There's nothing wrong with that, actually. Where there's genuine conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we need to listen to that and respond to that. But respond by leaning into lean into his great grace and lean into his great power for you his forgiveness and his mercy for you, which we've been hearing all morning. That's where we lean. If there's a sense of the fear of God there, actually, yeah, I've been giving myself to things and ways, actually, conceiving things, and, ah, oh, don't run away, run to him. Because he's the one full of great pa- grace. He's the one full of great power. And he's the one that can help you. So shall we stand, please, and not like band to come back up. And... Uh, we're going to sing again, and this is a great time just to, so we stand? It's just a good moment to whoo, chew on these things and think about what's been said and think about what is written here and, and just lean into God. And because like, like, like Peter, you know, Peter had learned some lessons by this point. <laughs> I think that he knew the power on display wasn't of him and so just I'd encourage you just whatever you need lean into God he's full of grace and he's full of mercy and he is holy and Lord I, I just pray that Lord we can be like Isaiah I'm of unclean lips when he saw the holiness of God who am I And yet you touched his lips. There was that cleansing. There was a forgiveness. There was a, no, you can come near because of Jesus. Don't don't run away. Come near and find grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. And Lord, I pray that for each one of us here. I pray that maybe even for the first time, if you're here, never, as it were, turned your life over to God. Said, I'm yours. Never taken God up on his offer of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And maybe this morning it's just like, yeah, I want that. I want that. And do it. Just trust in him. Lean into him. Pray to him. Call out to him. And I pray that each one of us would go away from here just more amazed at who you are. That you are love. You are justice. And you are holy. And You are pure. And we are loved by you. It's incredible. The gospel is amazing. Like Marcus said, it's like you don't get this anywhere else. The cross, the resurrection, it's like, whoa, this is incredible. Incredible news <laughs> that we are, our sin says, yeah, we're worse than we often think we are. But we're more loved and accepted than we could ever hope. And we're grateful for that. Amen.